Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview of my conversation with my dear friend Simon Hunt of Simon Hunt Strategic Services. Simon's been spending a significant portion of each year in China for the best part of three decades and has been a wonderful resource for me as I've tried to understand China during that period. He's also forgotten more about copper markets than most of us will ever know, and his geopolitical framework over the last couple of decades has sounded at times a little fanciful to me, but uncannily it's played out in many cases just as he posited it would several years prior to things actually happening. I think you'll enjoy this one a great deal. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The Endgame, The Super Terrific Happy Hour, and The Narrative Game is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on this show and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And with that, please enjoy the show. Simon Hunt, my dear friend, how are you? It's so, so good to see you after such a long time. And likewise, it's been far too long. It really has. It really has. You, you are decamped now into the, the warmth of uh, the United Arab Emirates. I am. I got here by mistake. I came out in uh, literally a year ago for a three-week holiday down into the province of Fujura to a lovely resort called the Meridian on the coast. And then, of course, the UK locked down. And by the middle of the year, I, I had to decide, am I going back to the mess in the UK or am I going to stay here? So I made the decision to stay here with my kids' blessings. Fantastic. Well, it's, I mean, look, for you, it's a, it's a great place to be because it's a great staging post for getting to Asia, which is obviously where you spend a lot of your time over these last, well, how many years now? <laughs> since 1993 since 1993 so yeah we're almost almost 30 years in and, and you know you're one of the people who i know who who genuinely has been to china and put their boots on the ground more times than i can count more times than you can count i'm sure and so you know when, whenever people talk about china i always find myself with your kind of wing commander's voice in the back of my head as a, as a kind of sanity check and someone that really knows <laughs> what's really going on so there will be some people who haven't heard you and I chat before because it's been such a while. So perhaps you could, could just kind of give people a bit of your background, and particularly with with reference to your your background in China, what takes you there, the kind of people you, you work with in China, just so we can set the stage for what's to follow. I ran another consultancy company, which I founded in 1975, which grew into a beast that got taken over after I had left. And in 1993, thanks to an introduction made by a board director for Akwawa in Tokyo, I started pounding the roads around China. And for the next 17 years, every year I was visiting about 80 factories in about 50 different towns and cities. The 1990s were really exciting times, really intriguing. And then 
because around about 1995, 1996, the word came down into the factories that China was going to join WTO. And suddenly from being a closed shop, they were asking questions. We want new technology. We want X, Y, and Z. What can you do to help us? Right. And it was a really interesting, exciting time. I have to say in, uh, some of the road trips were pretty bloody dangerous. And then uh, as China found their feet and made their footprint on the big wide world, the excitement died down and it became much more of a slog, but always fascinating. I mean, you always every trip uh, when I was still spending until lockdown two months every year in China, to, uh, going around um, 80 different factories, but confined to a few old friends uh, and some new ones. Every trip you learn something new. Yeah. And what's missing now is, of course, the body language. Um, yeah, of course. Even doing a, a Zoom call, which I don't seem to do to China for various reasons, you miss that body language when you ask a question. So one, one lives with what one's got. So, you know, you get on with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we're all in that, we're all in that same boat. Just if you can, paint a picture for China in the 90s and what a trip there kind of entailed. Because, you know, post-WTO, all we've really seen is this, this mushrooming of these enormous great cities. We've seen what's happened to Shenzhen. We've seen what's happened to Shanghai. We've seen what's happened to some of the provincial cities that really no one had even heard of before this, and yet are surprised to find they've got you know tens of millions of people living in them. So, so just take us back to the nineties when none of that was really happening, and what and what it was like to actually to to get around China firstly before all the all the high speed trains and stuff, and then what it was like to try to have real productive conversations with the Chinese. Were they more guarded then pre WTO when they were? had fewer foreigners coming to talk to them, or were they were they less guarded? Well, first of all, getting around was not easy. You did not have the fantastic airports that you have today. Uh, Beijing Airport was a tiny little thing. You queued up for hours to get a seat on an aeroplane. They weren't frequent. And you would arrive, say, in Harbin, and luckily, I'm taken around by senior engineer in, in a, a group within the Ministry of Machinery. And uh, from there, you go and visit maybe two or three factories, uh, usual evening banquets, which were quite an amusing experience. And I quickly learned on my first night that there were six of them and one of me. And that they would get up and down toasting me all the time. So I was drinking six times as much as they were. So the second evening I said, well, I'm going to treat you guys, you guys to a And I got up like a jack-in-the-box toasting them, and they all had to get up and, and drink with me. So it was a Paris Passu drinking session. <laughs> but it, it was going to the outlying regions where you would arrive at an airport uh, late at night, and then have a three, four hour drive, mostly on dirt roads. And <clears throat> you would arrive in, to take one example, into what looked like a very plush hotel. And I'm taken up to my room and it's got a sort of a six foot television screen and everything looked wonderful. 
until you went into the bathroom and suddenly realized that um, plumbing was not actually <laughs> installed. <laughs> and in terms of conversations in those early days, they were pretty guarded. And, oh, yeah, we're running at 100% capacity until you went round the plant and you saw no way. But what was also very interesting, production was not geared to what was sold. Anything that was not sold went into inventory. And I, I can recall going into a telecom cable yard and cable was stacked, maybe half a mile long by 200 yards wide. So you suddenly got a, an, an appreciation of what was going on in China. And then, of course, you know, things as the years went on, planning got much more geared towards sales. And now, of course, it's pretty sophisticated. Yeah, I, I think the, the big, big thing which is misunderstood in the West, they were very smart. They set up the infrastructure so you created very efficient supply chains. People talk about, oh, we're going to localize our production instead of having it in China, we'll have it in America. But what they don't understand, it's not just one company in a supply chain, it's several. I mean, take Apple as an example. They have 150 odd different plants supplying bits and pieces to them owned by 100 separate companies. Yeah. I think what we found out in the pandemic is how much the world depends upon China. It's not just the big sophisticated stuff. It's little things like light switches. And I mean, you go and talk to builders in the UK, which a friend of mine has been doing. Oh, I can't complete this building. Got no light switches. Yeah. Or I can't get the steel mesh for the concrete. Where does it come from? China. This is not there. You can't deliver. You can't complete. Yeah. It's fascinating how deeply the world economy has come to rely on China. And we'll, and we'll be back to China for sure for a lot of this podcast. But with that kind of background in place, so people get a sense of, of kind of how you got involved in China in the first place. The other thing I'd like to do to set the stage is talk about something that you and I have been talking about off and on for well, well over a decade now, as Brzezinski and his grand chessboard book, I guess, which was, is what started the whole thing. Because th this is a theory that I think the book was written around the time that you were actually making it. So I think it was written in the mid-90s, perhaps. Um, so it would have tied in quite nicely with your early travels to China. So to talk a bit, if you can, about uh, the grand chessboard strategy, why it's important, because, you know, you, as I say, you and I have been talking about it for years, and, and your take on it has always, I've felt, just such a great way to frame what is, A, a much broader discussion, and in the last few years is turning into a much more important discussion. Well, really, it goes back to 1904, when Helfer Mackinder, who was a geographer, created this theory that the world depends upon the heartland. And the heartland is the physical landmass bonded by the Pacific on one side and the Atlantic on the other. And he basically concludes that he who controls the heartland controls the world. So Brzezinski's real policy, which I think was continued and is continuing to be continued by Kissinger, is we have to divide China and Russia, because they're the big two players in the heartland. So the unexpected consequence of trying to contain China and Russia is that it's drawn to...
full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. <laughs>